you would have to say if it if it really did go away the second the last apostle died that means that we have mm-hmm. to assume that Timothy and Titus were heretics we only have what they were told to do we have um, we have to believe that they actually didn't do that because once that generation that taught Timothy and Titus died out Timothy and Titus were were heretics I mean that's what you have to believe right yeah or, or at if least you buy half into that particular heretics, theory. right you know or like semi heretics yeah. <laughs> Welcome to another Direct to You with No Middleman episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim along with my colleague Ken Hensley, and uh, we've been walking through some of the reasons, and specifically in this latest series, the sort of narrative process by which my friend Ken Hensley, former Baptist pastor, uh, ended up somehow inexplicably in the Catholic Church. Uh, If you're in the middle of a journey, or um, if you're looking for support from others who are asking those kinds of questions, please do come visit us uh, at chnetwork.org. That is the website for the Coming Home Network, where you can find all kinds of old episodes of On the Journey, plus a whole lot more um, in regard to resources from people who have told their stories. But also, uh, we would encourage you, if you're looking for support and a community, to check out our online community, which is community.chnetwork.org. So, Ken, Last we left off, your world had been kind of rocked. Um, questions about this thing called Catholicism, which you'd never really entertained before, are suddenly presenting themselves to you in a way that you now kind of have to deal with. So yeah, let's pick yeah. up from there, I guess. You know, I, I have to say as we begin that um, I'm always wondering each week what new adjective you're going to come up with for the show. And I have to, I have to admit, I think you're running out. You're beginning to have to, they're, they're becoming longer and longer. You're having to combine like four or five different ideas. I need to, to go back actually and look through all the uh, uh, previous episodes to make sure I'm not going to accidentally reuse one. Uh, yeah, you should watch so. like 85 episodes of the, On the Journey with Matt and Kid. I have to buy okay. new vinyls all the time. I'm running out of my vinyl collection. Okay, what we're doing in this series here, uh, yeah, I'm segueing. This is a very natural segue away from vinyl, all right, Um, is I'm telling my story and we've come to the question, um, what convinced me that I needed to become Catholic? And that's what we're going to chew on today and and next week as well. But I want to begin by by telling a little story that I forgot to tell early on because because it's just kind of funny. You know, I had mentioned my absent minded uh, direct out of central casting professor right in seminary. The one who had uh, the uh, an earned PhD in Old Testament and another earned PhD in New Testament was kind of really spaced out, stuttered a lot, and he, uh, he's the one who shook my cage on the issue of justification um, early on. Uh, you know, got me thinking about the Protestant conception of justification and whether it was really true or not. Um, anyway, funny story. After I left seminary, uh, he and I b- continued to meet for lunch. Uh, you know, here and there we'd meet and we'd talk and we'd go over theology. And he was really an oddball. I mean, when we would meet for lunch, Matt, the first thing he'd do is he'd put a tape, a cassette tape player in the middle of the table and he would start recording. 
And he, he, he would treat this like very seriously. He would say, well, we only have 90 minutes together and we must record this. And, and he would punch the button. And then he would sit there and drink uh, creamers right out of the, the little <laughs> creamer thing while we talked. Okay. Anyway, in one of our conversations, uh, I must have told him that I had, you know, we had moved to Riverside, Tina and I, and I was working as a waiter at a restaurant. I must have told him something like that it was straight that it was strange to having to have left the the atmosphere and the the uh, society of seminary and to be working in a secular environment again where there was a lot of drug use and and other things okay i must have told him that anyway scroll forward now a few years i've been a youth pastor for three and a half years i'm being ordained now in, into the ministry and i'm going to become a senior pastor and i am and i'm going to my my oral exam before the ordination council of the denomination all right so the image you need to have in your mind is like the the uh the un security council it's a big round table in uh in a large like the council of elrond with gimli the dwarf and his axe (laughs) ready to like whack your thesis if it doesn't um pass muster (laughs) that's it that's exactly the image you want to have anyway i'm sitting there and uh, you know 10 or 20 big wigs from the american baptist churches of the pacific southwest Professors at the seminary, leading pastors, you know, uh, whoever. Anyway, bigwigs. And they're supposed to ask me questions, and, and I'm ha- having my oral exams, you know. And in the middle of this, and it just came out of the blue, in the middle of this, one of them looks across this, this, this UN Security Council table at me and says, and says um, in one of the recommendation letters that we received from a former professor at Fuller Seminary, uh, he comments that after you graduated from seminary, you fell back into a life of drugs. <laughs> I'm not kidding. <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is exactly what she said. Um, you fell back into a life of drugs for a while. Would, would you like to comment on you that? You said, let me see that tape. Let me see that no, tape. I, this is, um, if you could have seen the gears in Ken Hensley's brain at that moment, I mean, they were moving faster than they have ever moved at any point on earth because I like in a split second I had to calculate okay I went to lunch I might have said something to him like like you know x but he's so spaced out that he interpreted it to mean y and he's so spaced out that he didn't realize that including that in a letter of recommendation would might be a not bad have been thing the smartest thing on it yeah would it be a bad thing yeah I had to calculate that all quickly and, and the thing is, I was su- I was in such an untenable position that I I actually just started to laugh, <laughs> and <laughs> there was no way out. Well, what else can you do? Sort of, yeah, so I laughed, and I said to and I said, well, I, I explained just what I've explained to you. I said, well, he's very spaced out, and I must have said this, and he must have interpreted it. But no, I never fell back into a life of drugs, and I just let it fall just like that, and the room was silent for. <laughs> uncomfortably long period of time and then then she said okay and she just went on with her next question but <laughs> this is like anyway i thought that was worth telling is that's it is an extraordinary moment in my in my life well it's okay. california well, <laughs> people have to ask these questions ken right that's right okay so we're talking about the reasons now or, or what led me to to the place where i believed i needed to become catholic okay so i'm on the phone with scott hahn this is where we left off last time Scott and I began to talk. Scott and I began, if, if you will, lightly, in a friendly way, to debate one another. 
But but very, very quickly, I was thinking, you know, Ken, you have a lot you need to learn. Is this kind of ridiculous just to jump up and, and be debating Scott? I wanted to learn much more about the case for the Catholic faith, what the reasons were, what the what the case was. And so I remember I said to Scott at one point, you know, look, you're a busy guy. I'm a busy guy. Just g- give me a list of 20 books or so that you think would be most important for someone like me. And I'll go. And this is the way. one that showed up in a gigantic refrigerator box on your doorstep <laughs> that you had to haul in in the cover of night. Those were the tapes. Uh, those were the tapes that he sent from St. Joe's Communications. He also mailed me, you know, th- there's no email at this point. This is like 1992 or three. He also, uh, he mailed me a list of um, books. Okay. So I had this box loaded. Yeah. This refrigerator sized box loaded with cassette tapes. And then I had a, li- a list of books and what began at that point really was about a three to four year period of me becoming consumed with the question, could the claims of the Catholic church be true? I, you know, I, I was skeptical, as I said last week at the beginning, I thought, well, I can answer these things that Scott's saying. Um, but I was also curious, how come I don't know the case for the Catholic faith? And I was curious, and this led me to several years of rethinking my entire worldview as a Christian from the, uh, I don't know, top floor down, bottom floor up, I don't know which way, you know, coming in sideways through the window, but that's what I was doing, all right? And now, okay, so I come home. Tina is not a stupid person. And when she sees her Baptist pastor husband coming home from work at the end of each day with piles of books in his arms, books with titles such as the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, the councils and decrees of, you know, the canons of Dort, no, not Dort, the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent. Um, Evangelical is not enough. Born fundamentalist, born again Catholic, titles like that, okay? Uh, She began to suspect that something serious was going on. And I remember she began to ask me early on, why are you reading all those books? You don't actually think that Catholicism could be true, do you? And, you know, just to remember that time, Matt, is to, just to put me in a kind of a tense place because it was a good question. Why was I reading all of these books? Why was I listening to every tape debate I could find in the universe between a Catholic and a Protestant? Did I, did I think that the claims of the Catholic church might be true? And I guess the, the true answer is that, yeah, I was beginning to suspect that the church might be what it claims to be. Um, But at the same time, I had so many questions. There were so many things that I would have to think through. And I had so many reasons for not, not wanting to become Catholic, you know, starting with, you know, a mortgage th- that had to be paid at the first of each month. Yeah, you've brought up something here, too, that I think is really important is that, um, you know, I think once my own, you know, mind began to open up and heart began to open up to the possibility of this, it was not an instantaneous thing. It was several years in the process. And, you know, I think that's sometimes kind of confusing to people who are within the Catholic Church. They're like, well, so you've heard the argument, you're convinced, now make your decision. And that's not how it's, yeah. that's not how it happened for me. That's not how it happened for you. That's not how it happens for most of the people that you're working with. Because you, I mean, you're talking to Protestant pastors who are in jobs all the time who are wrestling with these things. And it's not like you can just flip a switch and be mm-hmm. like, okay, I accept this argument. Therefore, I will upend my entire life. I mean, there are all kinds of like, yeah background questions like well this is true and these other things might be true but give me some 
give me some time to investigate them because I'm still yeah, trying to grapple a, the fact that the Catholic Church is right about anything, let alone the possibility yeah. that it's right about everything. Yeah, that's exactly right. And when you've been an evangelical Protestant for about 20 years and you're and you become a pastor and you're a Baptist pastor and you, you the only thing you've ever known is this. And if you leave the Protestant ministry, all kinds of dominoes are going to fall. And mo most of them feel up front to be very heavy, bad dominoes, you know, the kind of dominoes that smash your head in. Um, you know, basically what I thought was I would have to be absolutely sure if I'm going to leave the ministry to become Catholic. And so it, it takes a lot of thought. It takes a lot of time. Um, so anyway, I had a lot of reasons for not wanting to become Catholic. And I knew that Tina had no interest whatsoever in, in being Catholic at that point. Um, and so I was cautious. I was skeptical. And on the other hand, it's, it, it's almost as though the vision of the church and its claims was sort of like a giant magnet that just kept pulling on me, um, forcing me to inspect it and to study it and all that. And the issue that I want to focus on today is the issue of history, okay? Because there was the issue of the early church, early church history, and that was that became very important for me. And that's what I want to walk with you through, um, walk with you through today, okay? And, and while you're uh, mentioning this and before you launch into it, Sure. I do want to direct our listeners to a Journey Home episode that you did a few years back. It was you and Dr. David Anders both talking about yeah. like the role that history played um, in your journey to the Catholic Church. And it's it's actually a really fun episode. It's one of my favorite episodes that we've ever put out. You get into a lot more like the apologetics aspects of the question in that episode. Um, I suspect you're going to get into more of just like how it like hit you between the eyes and how it felt uh, <laughs> on today's episode. Yeah, you know, believe me, I'm fighting the temptation to go into great detail. Whenever an argument begins, I want to follow it all the way through, and I'll do my best, okay? By the way, that episode with David Anders, I remember that well, because that's the moment when I sat there and felt like the shrinking violet next to this PhD in history, <laughs> and he and I are having this conversation. Um, it was kind of a humbling day for me. But anyway, Anders knows how, to, he knows how to like uh, answer a question. That man can answer a question. Yeah, that's his job. We really, you know, okay. Here it is. The Catholic writers that I was reading, and of course, when you listen to any of the conversion stories, you, you have this theme just occurring again and again and again. They kept insisting that the church that was founded by Jesus and the apostles was the Catholic Church. And that if you only read the early centuries of church history, the early church fathers, you would see that the church was Catholic and it was not Protestant. One of the books I read, well, two of the books I read were by the infamous John Henry Newman, infamous to Protestants. His, um, his conversion story and his essay on the development of Christian doctrine. And, and therefore, I read him saying things like, to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. In fact, going on to say that it was easy to show, it was easy to prove that the early church was not Protestant. Um, here's a quote that I love, and I got to read it. History is not a creed or a catechism. He's saying, you know, when you're studying history, you don't have a creed in front of you. You don't have a catechism. Um, but it gives, it, it gives lessons, he says, rather than rules. Still, no one can mistake the general teaching in this matter of the early church, whether he accept it or stumble at it. Bold outlines, broad masses of color rise out of the records of the past. They may be dim. They may be incomplete. But they are definite. And this one thing at least is certain 
the Christianity of history is not Protestantism. If ever there was a safe truth, it is this. Okay, I took the challenge, Matt, and I began reading the early centuries of the church, the church fathers, Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus of Lyon, you know, Ambrose, Augustine, on and on and on. And I also began to read some of the most scholarly histories of the early church and uh, focusing on J.N.D. Kelly's famous work, Early Christian Doctrines. He was an Anglican historian. And Yaroslav Pelikan, who was a Lutheran, his book, The Emergence of the Catholic Tradition. And I want to kind of pick away at a few of the details, but what did I find? I found a church being described in the early centuries of Christianity that was, to put it the most simple, to put it most simply, was just not the church that I was used to. It was not the Christianity that I knew as an evangelical. For instance, to list a few things, it was a Christianity where churches had altars, okay? There was no altars in my churches. But the reason there were altars in the churches then is that the center of Christian liturgy and the center of Christian worship was something called the Eucharist, another word that I, I didn't use, and the Eucharist was conceived as a sacrificial offering, something that was being offered on an altar by presbyters who were functioning as priests and soon to be called priests. And the Eucharist is conceived as a miracle meal uh, during which bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. This is one of the things that I found a Christianity in the early centuries that believed this. And I'm not going to take the time to read excerpts from all the early church fathers, but you and I did a series on this. And if people want to look at episode 35 of On the Journey with Matt and Ken, that's the beginning of the episode that we did on, um, on the Eucharist. But the point is, I found this consistent theme in the writings of the second century, the earliest writings after the apostles, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, on and on. And the, and the Christian historians that I was reading confessed all of this as though it were really quite uncontroversial. Um, here's what J.N.D. Kelly said, quoting him, from the Didache, we gather that the bread and wine are holy. They are spiritual food and drink communicating immortal life. Ignatius roundly declares that the Eucharist is the flesh of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Clearly, he intends this realism to be taken seriously. The Eucharist is regarded as the distinctively Christian sacrifice from the closing decade of the first century, if not earlier. <laughs> the closing decade of the first century, not earlier. If not, I mean, if not earlier. Yeah. yeah. So what's crazy about this, Ken, and, you know, and, and you've hinted at it here too, is not that like... I found that there were actually a lot of sources in the early church that believed that the Eucharist was the body and blood of Christ. Um, it's not like I found like a, a range of opinions on the topic. They all said yeah. it, right? The debates are like, yeah. is Jesus God? The debate is not like, is he truly present in the Eucharist? The debate yeah. was like, is he really God? It was it was kind of wild to me to see that the things that they were debating, like the, the things that I would have been blowing the whistle on and saying, hey, um, I would have... Yeah, I want to debate this point. The yeah. Eucharist was not on the table. They're debating like the Trinity, right? Not yeah, debating yeah. the Eucharist. This is, 
this is one of the themes that you kind of find everywhere. In fact, the only place where where you can see it really doubted is the Docetists who deny that Jesus had flesh and blood. They're the ones who are denying that the Eucharist is the is the true flesh and blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Ignatius writes about that. But but you're exactly right. You don't find what you don't find is anyone standing up in those early centuries and saying, hold on. No, you know, this is not. You guys are it's going a symbol. off the deep end. Yeah. With this, yeah with this magical stuff. This is not what the apostles taught. What I found is that this seems to have been the position of Christianity about the central element of Christian worship, the Eucharist, all the way really until the time of the Reformation with only one or two voices here and there going against it. Okay, baptism as well. I found the early church fathers' view of baptism universally is that it was sacramental. And again, I'm not going to read the quotations now, but you and I did a series on it, which begins with On the Journey, episode 14, if anybody will looks at it. But as a Baptist, of course, I viewed baptism as being purely symbolic. And so I would never have used the language that, that you find throughout the early church fathers, where they talk about how we are regenerated in baptism. We're born again, how the Holy Spirit has given us as sins are washed away. In fact, St. Augustine said, baptism washes away all, absolutely all of our sins. And again, the early church historians were saying the same thing. A short quotation from J.N.D. Kelly, baptism was always held to convey the remission of sins. It is that washing with living water which alone can cleanse penitence, and which being a baptism with the Holy Spirit is to be contrasted with Jewish washings, which were symbolic. This is, as you were saying about the Eucharist, this is something that's everywhere. In fact, what struck me was not that I could find certain early church fathers that were speaking in these ways. What struck me is that they were all speaking in these ways, all of them, from the earliest writers on. And it was just hitting me. Apparently, this is what the Christianity of the second century, post-apostolic, and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the seventh, and really, again, all the way up until the time of the Reformation, this is what Christianity believed. Because I know what my experience of this question was, but I'm curious what your experience of this question was. Uh, because you'd read Lorraine Bettner and you'd read the two Babylons, and you know that's kind mm -hmm. of your impression of, of Catholicism. And part of the narrative in those is that there was a sola scriptura, faith alone strain of Christianity back then, but it was suppressed, right? And so... The reason yeah. that we don't see it is because the evidence for it was suppressed by the church, which wanted to, um, yeah, they thought it was an error, so they shut it down. But if that's the case, how do we have so much information on the Docetists? How do we have so much information on the Gnostics? I mean, Irenaeus goes mm -hmm. on all day about the Gnostics. If they're trying to suppress the Gnostics, how come we so much? I mean, the reason we know about the Gnostics is because they talked about how bad they were all the time. <clears throat> if there was this faith alone soul scripture thing going right shouldn't we find like Irenaeus like having a few chapters saying hey just so you know Bible alone is not a good thing yeah. we don't, yeah, we don't even have this that. or there's there's this group that believes that the Eucharist <clears throat> is just a symbol a, a memorial meal and they also believe yeah. that baptism is just a symbol and it should only it should only be given to those who have come to personal faith yeah you yeah don't they didn't erase that. these heresies right. they I mean they as a matter of fact, we know a ton of them because they combated them fairly publicly and fairly in fairly great detail. I mean, the only reason you we know, know about, about these heresies is because the Christians, yeah, the Christians wrote about them. 
Yeah, we know about Marcion. We know about the Ebionites. We know about the Sabalians. We know about the Arians. We know we know about them. We know about all the early church heresies and heretical groups that were separated from what Saint Ignatius refers to as the Catholic Church. We know about them because the early church fathers and theologians and apologists wrote about them and answered them. And yet we don't find them writing about Baptists and answering them. Just a couple more quick images. I found in the early church writings, I, I found a Christianity where there were bishops in every major church, that these bishops were viewed as standing in apostolic succession from the apostles, and, and that there, there was something called the Bishop of Rome and the Church of Rome, which held a special position of prominence. You find this in the early church writings. In fact, by the time the canon of the New Testament is uh, formalized in the late fourth century, the Bishop of Rome is also recognized as speaking with a unique authority by that time. So while there's development in this, I, I, I could see, it was a development of a kind of Christianity that was clearly Catholic. Just one more. I found in the early church fathers a church being described um, where in which the key to understanding the true meaning of the scriptures, that is the key to understanding, interpreting the Old Testament and the New, was seen to be um, an apostolic tradition or ecclesiastical tradition that had been received from the apostles themselves. And I'm not going to quote it, but, I've, but, I, but I know it so well that I just quoted it off the top of my head. I think again of Irenaeus's famous statement in his book Against Heresies, and this is written around 180 AD, 185, 189, where he says that the apostles deposited in the church all of their teaching, their teaching, just like a rich man deposits his money in a bank. And anyone, Irenaeus says, who wants to know the truth can go to the church to receive it. In fact, he goes on to say, if there should be any dispute regarding something, shouldn't we look to the most ancient churches and receive from them the truth? Okay, this idea well, you mentioned Sola Scriptura a moment ago, but this idea that in order to know what the apostles taught, we don't go to Scripture alone. We go to the teaching that the churches received, that they founded, received from them, and we understand even the Scripture in the light of that teaching, the teaching that had been received by the apostles to the churches and passed down. And again, anybody who wants to follow this in great detail and hear the argument in great detail, look up our series on Sola Scriptura, which begins with episode three of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. Okay? But the bottom line is the essential position of the church or the essential Christianity that I saw, Matt, in the early fathers, it just wasn't evangelical Christianity. It wasn't anything close to the Protestantism that I knew. You have the Eucharist as a sacrifice, the real presence of Christ. You have baptism as a sacrament. You have this structure of authority, a hierarchical church with bishops and the Bishop of Rome. You have scripture and tradition supporting one another. In fact, Origen wrote in his fundamental, um, his fundamental doctrines, he wrote, the teaching of the church has been handed down through an order of succession from the apostles, and it remains in the churches to this present time. That alone is to be believed as the truth, which is in no way at variance with ecclesiastical and apostolic tradition. So let me kind of pull this together and talk about the implications and what it did to me and what this all said to me. Because 
Matt, as far as I could see, I mean, just looking at it impressionistically, really, just looking at the portrait that is painted when you read the first five centuries of the church, the only churches that I could see existing now in the world that even came close to resembling what I saw in the early fathers would have been the Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox churches and maybe the Anglican Church. It certainly wasn't the Baptist Church, okay? Which, which, I guess the first thing that hit me was this. The form of Christianity that I know is, and that I have lived in, is non it's not historical. It's a it's sickening feeling in, when you realize that the old-time religion that you were taught to believe was the old-time religion is actually not old terribly time. old. <laughs> Not to old, not terribly old. Yeah. The actual old time religion yeah. looks like the thing that you think that that you thought was the newfangled yeah. version. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's, the, a, it's you, a terrifying you, thought. Yeah. yeah, I don't even know the right word, but I guess terrifying is good. But when the feeling began to sink into me that the form mm-hmm. of Christianity that I knew, evangelical Christianity, the Baptist version, wasn't historical. I mean, it wasn't the Christianity of the second century, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, they, you know, for a long time. And I remember coming home, you know, around that time at some point along the way, I remember coming home and saying to Tina, Hey, I've been crawling around in the early church for for a a while. I've been looking under every boulder. I've been looking behind every green tree. I can find Marcionites. I find Montanists. I find Arians. I find all sorts of creatures, but I do not find Baptists. I don't find any churches that look like a, a Presbyterian church in terms of its theology. I don't find Protestantism. Maybe very, very high church Protestantism. You know, I hadn't gone far enough to eliminate those yet. But there was just a real sinking feeling that Newman was essentially right when he said to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. So, And at this point is uh, where Marcus Scrodi would jump in, by the way and say that we need to make sure that people don't misinterpret what Newman was saying here, which is to be deep in history is to become Catholic, <laughs> right? Because uh, that's that's how a lot of people use that quote from Newman, but I mean, in, a, in a very real sense, I mean, this is where people end up in what, you know, Marcus all the time calls no man's land, right? Uh, so suddenly, like, you're not bought in a thousand yeah, percent with wanting to go become, grow your beard real long and join an Orthodox church, or you know, decide to cut meat out of your Friday meals and become Catholic or anything like that. But you can't just go back to your regular old Protestant church like everything's normal anymore. You just can't. I mean, it's just... Without... without You can't do it. Without making some more assumptions, which which I guess I'm going to mention right right now, because the question that hit me was, what do I do with this? What do I do with this knowledge that my form of Christianity appears to be cut off from history? That is, it appears to be a form of Christianity that didn't exist until the 16th century. Well, as a Protestant, and I'm sure you'll relate to this, you know, I'd always kind of made fun of the restorationist movements, the Jehovah's Witnesses, uh, the Mormons, Latter-day Saints, um, Seventh-day Adventists, because each one That's of distinguished them said, from like the, mean, the Stone Campbellites, right? They're restorationists, but they're Trinitarian restorationists, right? Yeah, I mean, but, but yeah, the same yeah, concept of yeah. you just go back to the beginning and start from scratch. Yeah. yeah. 
yeah, the basic idea that they that that they all had in common was that the church had apostatized from the truth very early, and that it needed to be restored, and it wasn't restored strangely until the early nineteenth century, when basically all these movements come into existence, right? 1840s, 1830s, 1840s, when Joseph Smith comes along or something like that. Okay, so I used to make fun of that, this idea that, oh yeah, the church apostatized right away and it, and it, and it doesn't come back. I mean, we don't have the truth until the 19th century. Are you kidding me? And so it's beginning to dawn on me a little bit that my position as a Protestant wasn't extraordinarily different than the Restorationists. I mean, what I thought was that the church apostatized kind of slowly over the first three or four centuries, culminating at the time of, of, uh, of the Emperor Constantine and, and the legalization of Christianity and the Roman Empire, and that it had been brought back to its senses in the 16th century with Luther and Calvin and the other reformers, but, but it was kind of hitting me. Which is really weird, by the way, when you think about it, that Constantine was our marker when it was the Council of Nicaea under Constantine, essentially called by Constantine, that doubled down on the fact that mm -hmm. no, Jesus truly is fully yeah. human and fully divine. Stop saying he's not. <laughs> like, that's the moment we picked that the church apostatized. It's kind of yeah, a strange yeah, moment it, to pick. Yeah, you start getting these implausibilities, okay? Because reading the early church, one thing that was becoming clear to me is that it's, it's not exactly true to talk about an apostasy with Constantine. You actually have a very consistent picture of a church with its theology developing, but de developing in a very organic and straightforward way from the beginning. You don't have one thing, and then with Constantine, you have another thing. You don't have that at all. In fact, the church that St. Ignatius refers to very early in around 110 AD as the Catholic Church is the same church that I saw growing, spreading, filling the Roman Empire, I mean, all the way to England on the west, all the way to the borders of India in the east. It's the same basic church. And, and I do want to say this because there's a lot more to come. There definitely was development. I, I could see that there was development in the theology. And this is something that confused me. This was a conundrum for me and something that it was going to take me some more time to figure out. But, but the thing that was clear to me, Matt, was that there is a basic kind of Christianity, if you will, a basic sort of Christianity that existed early on and that existed throughout the East and the West and existed all the way up to the time of the Reformation. And it's a basic kind of Christianity that is sacramental with altars and a priest and a Eucharist and, and, uh, and, and, and sacraments, all the things that I was listing, and a hierarchical structure with the Bishop of Rome at the top. There's one kind of Christianity that you could see developing. And so if I was going to hold out for a theory of apostasy, you know, and I'm, I'm scratching my head at this point, I mean, it would have to be an apostasy that is so early that there really is no evidence of it, as, as you mentioned, that is in the literature, meaning that there's no one objecting to what's happening. There's no one standing up and saying, we do not believe in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. We do not believe that we should have altars in our churches as just a table, you know, for the Lord. It, it would have to be an apostasy that occurred so early there's, that there's no evidence of it. There's no one standing up and saying, you guys are totally wrong. That's not what the apostles taught. And yet, you kind of hinted at this, and yet if the apostasy is very early, 
then the apostasy is occurring in a church that is the closest to the apostles. This apostasy is occurring in a church of saints and martyrs, okay? It's the same church where the leadership was so bold that they were willing to be thrown to lions and just, you know, gobbled up by wild beasts. They'd rather do that than deny Christ. And as you mentioned, this apostasy is occurring at the very same time that this same church is defining the doctrine of the Trinity, the deity of the Holy Spirit, working out the human and divine natures of Christ, and even defining the the, the, the canon of the Bible. We talked about this in, you know, some of the other segments, but like, you would have to say if it if it really did go away, the second the last apostle died, that means that we have mm-hmm. to assume that Timothy and Titus were heretics. We only have what they were told to do. We have, um, we have to believe that they actually didn't do that because once that generation that taught Timothy and Titus died out, Timothy and Titus were, were heretics. I mean, that's what you have to believe, right? Yeah, or, or at if least you buy half into that particular heretics, theory. right? You know, or like semi-heretics. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and what this comes down to, Matt, I mean, I, I, there's like, like a trillion words going through my head, but what this comes down to is it, it started to seem to me so implausible, so implausible that the church the apostles founded was a church that right away began to teach heretical doctrines that the church became essentially apostate, essentially a church teaching a damning system of works righteousness and remained that way for 15 centuries. I mean, I thought about what I could see in the New Testament. And what I could see there is I see Jesus saying to Peter, you know, you are Peter on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I see Jesus saying to the apostles, I'm, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all the truth and don't worry, go out and preach. I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. I see Jesus, I mean, think about it, resurrected from the dead, ascending to the right hand of the Father, sitting down on the throne of power, King of kings, Lord of lords, sending his spirit into his body, the church, and the church is described as Jesus is the head. The church is his mystical body, organically connected to him. The Holy Spirit is in the church, driving the church outward to be his hands, his feet, his voice in the world. And what do we get? A totally apostate church for 1,500 years? It'd be like if Jesus, if God made the promise to David and the second David died, he's like, Solomon, um, you're going into chaos, which actually happened. But it's like if he said on top of that, also, my promise that your throne and your kingdom would last forever and that I would raise up an heir for you um, that's off the table now, right? And yeah, if the fulfillment, as you said in, in, in many other ways, if the fulfillment is greater than the promise, and this is the fulfillment of the Davidic line, why would yeah, it... Yeah, the new covenant. What, what, yeah. What yeah. would, yeah. Why what would, would the be? church be doing that was worse than wicked King yeah. Manasseh was doing, and yet the line continued, right? Yeah, so you have a... That's a... That, that's a good point. You have a situation where the new covenant, which fulfills the old covenant and is in every way greater than the old covenant, um, just blows a bit, blows apart. And, uh, you know, Christ's power is not enough. The Holy Spirit is not enough. And you have a church just led into apostasy and remaining in apostasy for, I mean, th- do you know how long 1500 years is? 
I mean, it's uh, what like two. It's like fifteen more than years. five times as long as the United States has been a country. <laughs> so this is yeah. the point at which I, as an interviewer, can need to uh, hit the pause button and say, "But how did that make you feel?" Right? <laughs> I mean, how is um, this all making you feel? As this is all kind of like dropping on you like a fifty thousand pound boulder. I, I guess the word is it's it's makes you feel little. It makes you feel. I mean. It humbles. There is no way it can't. It humbles to realize I'm out there on this little twig that didn't even exist until the 16th century. I'm cut off from history. And I'm and I'm forced to take a position that is just feels more and more untenable that that all of Christian history was a fraud. That is basically um, and it's the story of an apostate church preaching an apostate gospel, believing all kinds of things that are totally false. Well, here's the, uh, here's the transition for our discussion next week. Because at that point, what I'm thinking to myself, Matt, is this. I'm thinking, okay, this is historic Christianity, but what am I going to do about the fact that I think the New Testament teaches doctrines that are contradicted by this Christianity of history that I see? When I interpret the New Testament... I see it teaching a purely symbolic view of baptism and of the Lord's Supper. And I don't see it teaching this hierarchical church with Peter at the top or anything like that. So what about the biblical material? And that's what we're going to look at next week. Bearing in mind that as you're going to this, you're saying, I don't remember the Bible teaching anything like this. Because if you're like me, you're like saying, well, obviously everything I've ever heard of preached about this is all symbolic. This is, I mean, obviously these are all anti-scriptural things. So where did this stuff come from? So I never thought to look at the Bible for these things. And once I started to look in the Bible for these things, it kind of freaked me out, which is, I guess, where we're going next. So that's where Ken, we're going. History this week, Bible next week. This is fun stuff. And uh, if you appreciate this um, and you want to read it, I mean, maybe you do have been right in the middle of this series and want to know what the rest of it is. Uh, head to chnetwork.org slash on the journey. You can find all of Ken's story. You can stack it up against my story on there too and see what fits. You can also dive into the doctrinal points that he mentioned just sort of in passing that we've done. Like some of them on Justification did like over a dozen episodes unpacking. Um, we're kind of whipping through them yeah. um, for the purpose yeah, that of one narrative. Begins, that one begins, I didn't mention that, but the, the whole issue of salvation and justification, that begins with episode 17 of um, yeah. On the Journey with Matt and Ken. And that's a wild ride right there. Um but uh, yeah, check that out. Also, uh, just chnetwork.org in general is a great place to find lots and lots of other stories and resources um, and, and all kinds of other assistance on your own journey. And if you're looking for community and if you're looking to talk to other people who are sorting through these questions right now, um, head to community.chnetwork.org. Finally, want to throw it out there. If you're a pastor, like Ken was when all this was kind of slamming him, uh, and you want to come on one of our Coming Home Network retreats, we do have scholarships uh, to try and make it to where you incur absolutely no cost and you plug right into a community of people who are going through all this stuff together. Uh, then please do check us out at chnetwork.org slash retreats. And uh, we'd love to get you out to one of those and just meet you and talk to you and uh, share a bit of your story with you. So, Ken. I'm excited Matt, about next week. We went a little longer Cover today than usual, and I apologize for that, but there you have it. It's all good stuff. Until then, see you until next, next time. Okay. See ya. Bye-bye.